Hey folks, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by a friend of mine, an ex-colleague of mine, Florian Ziegler. Florian has has been working in some of the most amazing companies and amazing games in the world. So he worked at Creative Assembly, Rovio, King, and currently he's a lead designer at EA's Fire Monkey Studio down under in Melbourne. Arguably one of the most successful mobile gaming studios with with titles like Real Racing, Need for Speed, and Mobile uh, Sims Free-to-Play all coming from that powerful studio. We talked with Florian about what makes designers tick, what kind of different designers there are, and how to solve typical designers' pitfall. In other words, we talked about how to be a successful designer in free-to-play mobile games, and also how to manage successfully designers in free-to-play mobile games. As always, it was a pleasure talking to Florian. I learned a ton, and folks, I hope you learned too. Hey, Florian. How are you doing? Yeah, a bit sniffly, but great. Thank you. Sniffly in Melbourne, right? Sniffly in Melbourne, despite Australian summer. Ah, Australian summer. That's the uh, that's the life, life of a EA designer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, yeah, life, life. Not just EA designer, but like the only still existing game studio in Australia. So, oh, that's true. Yeah. With the Gree Studio closing down, but um, but a powerful studio, Fire Monkey, um, amazing game, Sims, Sims free free to play, and yeah, uh, Need for Speed uh, and Real yeah. Racing, right? Yep. Some of the biggest hits that EA has. Yeah, they're all great games. Uh, it's a great studio. And also, we're looking for people. So, if you're listening to this uh, and you're interested in moving to Australia, there's many great roles open at the moment. All right. Shout out to everybody interested in, in roles in Australia at FireMonkey. But, uh, okay, let's jump to the, uh, the topic with this. So, what I wanted to talk to you about and what we wanted to talk about is about training designers. So basically, what happens when a new designer joins your team? And even though it's a, it could be an easy question, we don't want it to be an easy question, we want it to be a long question, and hence the conversation, because we don't want to go through the designer's journey, like what makes a, a person want to be a designer. We want to talk about the designer's motivation before jumping into the different kind of designers, as well as how to solve sort of a typical designer's pitfalls, right? Yep. Uh, all right. Okay. Okay. So let's let's kick it off. Let's let's talk about the uh, the, the the most the most interesting piece, and then kind of like the uh, the most I don't know. For me, it's interesting. It's it's like what is the designer's journey, and uh, and and you know, like how do you become a designer? Where what's what's the route? We know you love games. You love AAA. What happens next? So can you walk us through that? So, I mean, I think what happens to the majority of people who become uh, designers or want to become game designers is that, um, that at some point in their life, they have the realization that um, a, a dream job is actually achievable. So, um, what I hear a lot of times when I you know, tell mostly younger people that I'm a game designer, they're like, oh, that sounds like the dream job, but they never think they can actually have it. It's a bit like, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say it's like equally powerful, but it's a bit like actor or director or any anything else that just sounds like a job that a few select people get that you can never have. Um, and the people who actually have that realization that, no, hold on, maybe I can actually do this. What their journey usually is, they play a lot of games, uh, usually, as you said, AAA games, usually not mobile games. 
um, or they play sort of like classical uh, role-playing games, um, Warhammer, those kind of things. So they're usually people who are really deeply immersed in geek culture. Um, and uh, usually, I think for most people, be- wanting to become a designer is born out of an idea that you can do better than the guys who make the things you love doing. Uh, which is a bit schizophrenic, but this is, I think, how a lot of people start. So um, the guys you have nowadays on YouTube who basically do game rants, uh, they, they are the previous step to what most people make, what makes most people want to become a designer. So they're like, this is shit, they could do this better. Or like, I've got so much better ideas than those people. And um, that's usually when people take the decision that they want to uh, be designed. They want to create something cool uh, that they think is the greatest thing ever. Um, and for a lot of people, this means uh, usually AAA titles, because um, that's what most people just tend to grow up yeah. with. So, uh, yep. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm just, I'm just like I, I, I totally, totally see that. That that was kind of my situation as well. I, I, I have, I felt the same way. So I, I really wanted to get into games, but I was in the business school, so I thought that there's no way I can ever get into games because I can't really draw that well and I can't code and, and I'm, you know, that's a dream job that, that I can't ever achieve. But, um, but yeah, just, yeah, walk us through. So, so now you're a designer, you really want it and you're getting into, into improving, you're getting into that AAA studio. I've never worked in AAA studio. What is it like? Um, it's very different from mobile. Um, I could probably write a, a book about it, but I, I think the fundamental difference is that, um, on a AAA studio, you are you are not beholden to a business case as much as you are on a free-to-play title. So on a free-to-play title, I have to think a lot more as a designer because I have to think about like you know how are we monetizing this? Uh, you know, I need to know about data-driven stuff. I need to about marketing. I need to about acquisition. All that kind of stuff that traditionally is more PM territory. Whereas on on a tr- traditional AAA studio, you don't really care about this. Someone says, hey, this is a great game and is probably going to make money and then off you go. I mean, obviously simplifying here. But the only thing you need to, to find out is, like, is this thing fun? Which is a, a huge, huge shift in scope um, from, to mobile because you have to keep so much more in mind. It's much more intellectually demanding, I think. Hmm. What, is, what is the role like for, for a, sort of like a junior designer in a AAA studio? Well, usually um, when you come in as a as a junior designer, I think in any uh, in any type of game, uh, you usually have to do the grunt work. So uh, you're usually a, a data monkey. So you're filling in extra sheets. Uh, you're balancing out little things. Uh, maybe you get to build some levels, but it tends to be all the things that don't don't require you to have a full overview of the game and don't require you to. Uh, to have grand ideas and usually have little ideas, if if any at all, depending on what you do. Uh, okay, so so the next step is um, a lot. You know, a lot of, a lot of designers move from AAA studios to free to play studios, and and the reason might be because uh, there's more ownership. The teams are much smaller, so they feel that they can they can actually be designers at at a, at a free to play studios. And you've kind of had the same route. So you worked at a a AAA, then you moved moved to to mobile and I think you moved back to triple and then you're back on free to play right um, no actually once I moved to once I moved into mobile I never I never moved back into triple got it um, so, so I think there's actually two two types of journeys that people have into mobile um, one is that of a junior designer 
where you can't actually get get a job at Blizzard. <laughs> you know, you you put your CV out there, and for some reason they never reply to you, uh, <laughs> and neither did the guys from Call of Duty. Um, so you you are left with whoever actually needs you, which tends to be studios that just do things that are less sexy to a hardcore gamer, which is mostly mobile studios. And the other one is more senior people who are tired of the long slogs that most AAA game studios are like, you know, four or five, even more years, mm. if you're unlucky, um, that you have there. Um, yeah, as you said, more ownership to actually, and of having more ownership of, of the entire product. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of like two, two angles how you get into mobile usually as a designer. Mm -hmm. Money, money, actually a third one, money. So you tend to get, you tend to get paid a lot more on mobile than you would on AAA. Oh, okay, okay, I understand that. Understand, yeah, and yeah, I've seen some salaries on AAA. That's that's definitely true. Um, okay, so let's say you are a designer and and you manage either you moved to free to play games through AAA company or AAA studio and, or directly to to uh, to free to play games. Um, what is what is the designer's motivation? Is it is it you know as we understand it in in mobile games as you said it's very business driven. Uh, the decisions are based on data. It's 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 uh, it's not what designers usually dream about. You know, I don't think a lot of people became designers because they played Farmville or Frontierville or or um, I don't know even even Clash of Clans. They probably didn't become designers because of those games. Uh, they probably became designers because they play Uncharted or or I don't know Force Unleashed or, or whatnot. Those those more of a bigger games, Lizard games. So, so how to how to adjust that mindset and how to sort of make them understand or make them find the fun and free to play? Um, I think the first thing is always um, to make people understand um, to get out of the mindset that a lot of the core market has um, that free to play is a bad and evil thing because the reality is it it isn't and uh, it's mostly it starts becoming evident to a lot of designers when you start talking about uh, traditional games that um, have free-to-play models. Um, I think the, the newest expression of that would probably be Hearthstone, which is basically taken on from uh, traditional uh, CCG games, where like you know, getting a starter deck to play is is usually comes at a negligible cost, um, and it's only when you want to be very powerful or have large strategic diversity where you actually invest money, and it's actually a very fair model to a lot of players. Um, same for Gacha, where like you know, if you if you're lucky and in, in invested, you can get like the same great stuff that everyone else can. And uh, to a lot of a lot of people um, who come from the core market, they they're so emotionally invested in the idea that free to play mobile is evil um, that they don't even realize that they might have been playing uh, and it's been great fun. Um, so this is usually the first thing um, when people when I'm when I'm talking to designers who have negative opinions about mobile or going into mobile and being very apprehensive about it. And that play of fun uh, isn't something that uh, isn't important. It's just equally important. Um, and for them to understand that, hey, look, like we need to make this fun and it needs to be great, just like in AAA title, except for on top of that, it also needs to get players to give us money. Mm -hmm. So you're basically saying that it's, it's essentially, it's, 
more challenging from design perspective? Because AAA games are definitely more challenging in terms of production perspective. Uh, but but you would say that that free to play games are more challenging for for a designer. Um, I think absolutely, yeah, they are much much more challenging. And the the higher you get in terms of seniority, uh, the more the more intellectually demanding it becomes mm. because it is decisions do not just affect the, the enjoyment of the player. That's almost a given. Actually, I, I would actually say that if you, what you do as a, a designer in triple A is almost the minimum requirement to be able to go into free-to-play because you need to do all the things that you do in AAA uh, that you do well there, meaning making it fun, making it accessible, all those kind of things. And on top of that, um, you know, also need to um, ensure that you know there's monetization hooks, that they feel fair to the player, that they still cause them to, to uh, you know, to actually leave money, um, that your design decisions have implications on... Um, how well the game acquires users, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, that needs to be on your radar, so it becomes a, a proper, proper, big interconnected network of issues that suddenly uh, affect your design that before it wouldn't. Yeah, and you have to also be faster <coughs> due to the shorter development cycles and you know monthly updates. Uh, there's definitely less waste in uh, in mobile than there is in AAA. Um, I mean, I, I know from own experience and from other people that, you know, AAA a lot of times is like, yeah, like, you know, we ship it when it's ready kind of thing. And people like adding features because they kind of feel good. And if no one uses them, it doesn't matter. Whereas in mobile, your audience is absolutely relentless. If, if, if you have a feature that isn't perfect or that is superfluous, uh, people will just not use it and they will leave your game. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's really harsh, really really harsh. Yeah, because um, when you invest sixty bucks into a game, um, from a designer's perspective, if someone invests sixty bucks into your game, um, they're kind of invested. You know, if you make bad design decisions, they will kind of keep on playing because, yeah. well, that you know, their Christmas game. Whereas on mobile, they're just like, yeah, well, fuck this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, and even if they don't keep playing, they already paid the sixty bucks, and that's already sale. So. So from, from your perspective as, as a designer, it's like, well, we sold so many copies. That's, that's pretty much it. And you're looking at that Metacritic uh, number, and that's, that's kind of like your, your, um, your evaluation of your work. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing is actually, particularly in long-term gameplay, because mobile has mostly games as a service, um, from a designer's perspective, what a lot of um, newer designers mobile don't get is they think, oh, I'll design the game, and then that's kind of it. And on a AAA title, say your economy is broken and the end game is unbalanced, people go like, most people don't make it to the end game. And then if they do, they might complain about it or might have a little rant and then you go and patch it and it's all fine. Um, whereas a mobile, like if your economy is broken, the, you, fixing it becomes really, really tricky and it directly impacts your money. Yes. Um, so planning, planning for the long term is probably another thing that is really important to instill early in designers new to mobile. Uh, to kind of go like, hey, you're not making a game and it's out there, and then you know, like people play it and they're happy. It's like you need to think of the entire thing as potentially as an evergreen. Uh -huh. Right? If you look, for example, the Sims game, that the Sims free to play game, uh, it's been going on for like five years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, it it just keeps on giving, and you need to keep in mind that potentially you might be making a game that needs to last for five years and not ever break down. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the. Um that's the goal of every game to launch. It's five years, ten years. I mean, last forever if possible. But um, but yeah. Um, 
Okay, so so basically what you're saying is makes a lot of sense. In order to to change that mindset of a designer and, and to motivate them, you basically need to ex not explain to them, but but make them realize that this is actually more challenging than AAA. So there's a big challenge here to overcome and kind of play with their ego a little bit or, or their ability to to overcome challenges and learn faster, and um, and that way kind of adjust the mindset to understand that free-to-play games are equally as fun, uh, but they actually in demand you to think longer than, than just player's journey of, of 14 hours or whatever it takes to beat a triple-A game. Yeah. Makes makes total sense. Um, let's talk about different kinds of designers. You know, I've, I've worked with different kinds of designers. I've worked with you, so, so that's that's one. Um, but but there's, there's the designers who are very narrative-driven, who want to tell a story, who are all about the story. There's the, uh, the spreadsheet designers who are concentrating on, on making everything, you know, building the economies, balancing the troops, balancing the gameplay. Uh, there's the, uh, the, the, the feelers or the, the, the kind of designers that just love UX. They love to make sure that when you're harvesting that wheat, it feels amazing. The chickens are moving around and they stop and they look around and they see you and, they, and then the rain comes and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the chickens go behind cover and that kind of stuff. So those, those, those moments that, that, that feel that the game is almost alive, so those, those are the feelers. Uh, you have the big picture guy, definitely I would call the, the creative directors more of those. So they have a, a vision and they explain that vision to the team and they're excited, we're gonna make the biggest thing. They draw some kind of long timeline for for, for stuff. Uh, then there's the uh, the gluers, so the, the kind of a designers that stand between the engineers and the product managers, the marketing, and they kind of want to be in between, always you know discussing and talking. And those are the type of designers that come in and say like, well, engineering team thinks that that this and that, and the art team said this and this, and I think we can you know the, the, the almost like project manager type of designers. And finally. Uh, the type of designers that you don't see a lot in the studios are the indie designers. So you see a lot of designers that love the indie games, but then there's the, uh, the indie designers that kind of feel like they could do the whole game alone. They know a little bit of coding, they know a little bit of drawing, they're kind of like uh, Swiss army knives uh, of, of, of design, but not always gel really well with, uh, with a bigger team and a lot of decision makers. So a lot of different kind of designers, let's talk about those. Um, yeah, so um, usually um, when you when you start interviewing designers, you kind of already know where in that spectrum they sit, um, and they all come with trade-offs, and some are more suitable for free-to-play and mobile than others. I think, um, like if you you know when you talked about the indie guys um, or sort of like uh, the storyteller, they're traditionally less suited. To have a long-term career in mobile, just purely because they kind of they kind of don't really want to be there. Um, the storyteller designer is always a bit of a guy who's a bit of a failed director. <laughs> um, I'm I'm saying I like I come from a storytelling background, so I'm saying this with all with all the love I have for storytellers. <laughs> but like they're usually guys who are like, oh, I just have great ideas and I want people to experience them in some way. Or gals, um, or gals. There are plenty of good writers as well, female writers. Oh yeah, oh yeah, plenty of them. So when I, when yeah. I say designer, I, I I mean all all potentially yeah, available yeah. Uh, types and genders of designers. Um, but but yeah, those guys usually don't have a long legs unless it's a narrative driven game, oh, and then they usually 
veer into the indie space already. So can I ask you actually a question that, that came into mind? So so I, I do agree, uh, you know, narrative designers and indie designers, it's, it's kind of hard for them to find a long-lasting place. Though I do think that indie designers can be used for more of like a prototyping pods because they have interesting ideas for a, for a new type of core games, but they, core gameplays, but they're not that interested in, in anything bigger. But of course, that requires a little bit of different studio structure where you have prototyping pods that are just doing prototyping and nothing else. That's that's seldom, but but some studios do have them. But I had a question about the uh, the narrative designer. Um, so going kind of through the latest uh, latest game that that I've been working on uh, since you know again since the concept phase, we kind of skipped the uh, the narrative part to be honest and just went in with the prototyping and and with visual design and everything and kind of moved pretty far away. And then when it came to a point where it is right now, so it's it's close to soft launch, and we're starting to talk with different type of stakeholders. So we're talking to community, marketing, and publishing, all the different groups, and we're we're coming to realization now more than ever during the the, the uh, during the, the the production of the game is that since we didn't have narrative, it's actually pretty hard to put things together and tell tell why this is happening you know like well we have all these cool guys and they're just fighting isn't that all about it they're like well i not really like like <laughs> just give me a setting give me give me something what's going on here and we had those type of issues already doing the art production so you know we we of course we did some visual development we did some cool stuff we we had the settings of of what the world is but we never really built a narrative and, and art had a lot of problems in sort of grasping it so they more grasped themes rather than narrative that, that would tie everything together um yeah like i hear you but i would argue that actually um if you have a successful game even if it's devoid of narrative and um, once it becomes a brand the narrative becomes irrelevant um i think a good example is a supercell guys were like you know their, their universe exists in complete isolation there is no uh, there's no concept of a story being told on this, but because of their success, um, when you say now when they launched uh, Clash Royale, it, it came accompanied by a whole set of like narrative videos and whatever, and the world sort of start, started building itself. You know, they added the royals, and suddenly there were those guys, and like you didn't really care why they were there, but they sort of felt like they fit in. Um, and I, I think if you're successful, it becomes less of a problem. Mm. Uh, when you look at the way the, su the superhero stuff has been done now, where it's uh, basically they've all become pick-and-mix characters for any set of narrative you want to put them in. I mean, like, you can basically take any Marvel character now and put them in anything from, like, a uh, kind of 16th century pirate movie to uh, a modern dystopian future thing, and they, they can constantly reinvent themselves. I, I think um, if you're at that level of success, the narrative becomes not really a problem. Mm. Um, Sorry, this is probably not helping you right now because yeah, you're yeah. pre-massive pre success right now. But <laughs> but I, I would uh, I, I would I would definitely like I thought exactly the same way uh, almost two years ago, and you know, having worked with different narrative designers, I almost felt that that they are kind of coming up with problems that don't exist. Like, oh, why are we talking about this? It doesn't matter. Let's talk about core gameplay, core loop, progression. Like, I don't care. Nobody reads stories. Nobody reads lines. But. I'm actually a believer right now that you do need some help, some narrative help. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that uh, you need to, need to have a narrative designer on your free-to-play game unless it's a Telltale, um, Telltale games are not free-to-play, but, but um, 
unless it's a very story driven, but I do actually feel that when you're in that early concepting, kind of that prototyping phase, uh, you actually do need to write that one paragraph of what the world is, you know, the EA type of X statement. Like, I, I, I was against it, but now I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm actually a believer kind of walking through the path. Well, I mean, you know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm not saying that the narrative guy shouldn't be anywhere. Um, I'm I'm only saying that they usually don't have long legs yeah. in a studio because, they, yeah. as you just said, they're needed at a certain point yeah. where they're very very useful. Um, but they're sort of like on and off. They're like the perfect design exactly. contractor. And, and and even even more, like I totally agree with there is like I th- I don't think there's a lot of space for narrative driven designers in free to play games at all. I'm just saying that that you actually need a designer who understands narrative and who can actually explain that narrative, whether that is a designer or a product leader, executive producer, whoever, uh, to kind of write the narrative for your game, even if it's one or two paragraphs of like, what is this setting? It's enough, you know? Even even with Clash of Clans, you mentioned that one. It's like, when you start playing that game first, there's a narrative of a, of a distressed woman in her village and the goblins attack her. Uh, attack the village and you train your barbarians you go attack the bar- the goblins and there's a whole single player progression where you're fighting against the goblin king and then after a week you're like what goblin king who are you talking about like <laughs> but but it gets you into that narrative mindset with just a couple of images and and sort of a very very um stereotypical or very um very you know cookie cutter story yeah, I mean, I think just like, um, you know, if I sort of veer towards the indie guy, um, you know, the storyteller, just like the indie guy, is a bit of a wild character, mm-hmm. where, like, I think their value comes from having that um, that crazy solution that no one thinks about. The, mm-hmm. the missing puzzle piece that is um, so far off the radar for everyone who's more, like, business and mechanics and system-minded, um, that they can really make, you know, they make a good thing excellent, um, but... Um, they're not that useful necessarily on a day-to-day basis. Yes, yeah, totally agree. All right, let's talk about other type of designers, the spreadsheeters, the feelers, the big pictures, and the gluers. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, when I originally set those, those sort of types up, by, by the way, if you're a designer and listening to this, you you might have more archetypes or you might not like the ones that we've been talking about, but um, so th- those are mine. Uh, yeah. Or, or, uh, uh, they might they might be wrong, so don't be upset. Uh, <laughs> if you, uh, but like um, I think sort of the spreadsheet guy, the fields dude, and a big picture guy, the glue man, they're all absolutely necessary. Sometimes you can find them all in once; they're very rare. But um, the spreadsheet guy is like the darling of mobile design, right? Um, he's a guy who knows how to make a meta game, longevity in the game, um, who does all the balancing magic, uh, who runs his simulations. He's sort of like, I mean, in an ideal case, he's like half half an analyst and half a systems designer and an expert mathematician on top of it. <laughs> uh, and uh, and he's probably the most important guy. If you only have a, one designer on your mobile team, that's probably the one guy you want. Mm. Um, and the fields dude, I think, is really, really important as soon as you have some sort of action game. Mm. Um, so whether it's racing or shooting or running or whatever whatever the game farming. is. Like, farming. Farming. Yes. Uh, <laughs> He's, he's the, the guy you need to make it feel good. And you can see when games don't have that guy. Uh, they just don't feel very enjoyable. When you do things, you know, when you level up characters or when you uh, uh, press the buttons, they just ever feel slightly off or like a bit soulless. Um, Mechanical. You, you get to, 
yeah, mechanical. I feel very mechanical, uh, and you lose a lot of players. I think particularly early in the funnel because the game at that point isn't about the meta game. You're not you're not actually invested. You just want it to feel good and feel good about yourself, and you know feel good about taking. Uh, an interesting time off from your daily uh, life on your phone. So um, let me ask you a question. So we're talking about, um, you know, by guy we mean girl or, or <laughs> we mean woman or a man. So just just be, to be sure, because there's plenty of excellent female designers. But um, here's here's my question regarding the uh, the sort of feely type of designer. Um, let's talk about games that you know. It, it's often either action type of games where there's a Well, yeah, action type of games, or more of like a female-focused games, like farming, or even the uh, the latest one, the user-generated games, like like the episodes or uh, design homes. So, what do you think? Does do those type of games, the user-generated one, especially what I'm going to talk about is design home or covet fashion? Uh, do they need to have a feeler type of designer? Because here's the here's the thing: when you open up those apps, and especially design home. Um, It feels more like like an app. It doesn't feel like a game, but that is a feeling that they're trying to convey through that game. That it's not a game; it's an app. So, is that a is that a feeler designer or just? So, I think in those games, particularly, it might have been a choice to uh, not uh, to not scare off an audience that wouldn't play something labeled game, but they're happy to do something that looks like an app. Um, but yeah, I do think they need feeler designers um, because for me, a, a, a sort of fields kind of designer, um, they're more of an of a method actor kind of person. They in, they are the players' advocate in the sense that they are the people who are just really good at immersing themselves as a as their own consumer and going like this just doesn't feel right or like um, this thing should pop more. Mm -hmm. um, Dragging doesn't feel as good as swiping on this, you know. Like it's it's like a part UX um, and a part just emotional. Uh, they're just very good at at projecting themselves into the consumer's mindset, and they're needed, I think, for apps as much as they are needed for games. Mm. And I think those are actually applicable for both. That's that's a sort of like a, like some companies have the surprise and delight mantra, and I feel like that's that's the uh, that's the feeler designer. <laughs> that's yeah. what they do. The light is where's that? Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, big pictures and gluers. Um, so, big pictures and gluers. They, I think, they tend to be underestimated people. Um, the reason being is the big picture guy. So, how or girl <laughs> or woman? <laughs> um, uh, they're, they're people who are very good at sort of seeing the forest, not the trees. And this is traditionally the domain where like other professions and execs kind of come into the mix because everyone at a certain seniority level sees themselves as that kind of person. Um, so it very much comes down to the personality of the designer, whether they're being sidelined in their job or not. But they make or break, I think, your game. Um, if you don't have someone who has a holistic vision of the game at all times, um, you will create like sort of a bottoms up feature creepy um design uh, design game um that generally tends to do less well because everything doesn't gel uh, give me an correctly. example of, the, of that type of game um the type of game that you get when you um 
So when like when I said bottoms up design, what very often happens, I think particularly in mobile with so many different professions involved, you know, someone says, okay, um, your exec says, oh, you know, let's let's make synchronous PvP is the is the flavor of the day. Uh-huh. Let's do a synchronous PvP game. And then the designer comes, yeah, I've got like a great idea. We do like a mobile kind of thing. And then and the PM goes in like, yeah, yeah, but I want a gacha thing because gacha makes a lot of money. Um, and then the coder comes in and goes like, yeah, but, you know, we have those restrictions on the tech for synchronous. And um, everyone, no one really works in unison. Everyone has their, like, their little piece and then they try to stitch it together. And you have all those 10, 12 people meetings where everyone is trying to uh, make all the different pieces fit. Um, when you get the games that come out of that, usually uh, their systems feel disjointed. So, um, say you have an excellent fighting action game, but because that was designed by the designer, and the the meta game was designed by a PM that then goes like, "Well, let's have a gacha system, but you can't gacha characters because uh, there is not enough of them." So we split them into pieces, and it becomes this weirdly disjointed experience mm. where the, the different systems don't form a whole. Uh, this is usually where the kind of the big picture person is instrumental. That kind of goes like that early in the process goes, guys, no, 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 we can't do it this way. We need to f- like, I-, I will come up with a way to fit all your differing ambitions into a design that feels uh, genuine and coherent to the player. Got it. So, for example, if I if I have to give an example, then I'll do an example regarding a racing game since you might have heard something about those type of games. Um, If you're making a racing game, the big picture guy says, stop. Let's think about first what a racing game is. And then the racing game is actually about perfecting the maps, not, you know, it's it's different. Same map feels different with a different car. And it's more about like, you know, it's maps actually, not 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 the uh, not the cars that much, and then you focus on on that instead of focusing on on implementing an existing gotcha mechanic that might work in I don't know Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, and somebody says like no 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 you got to put this exact mechanic into your game. I don't care what type of fiction you put in. It can be different auto parts uh, that that are putting into this one one car. It doesn't matter what those parts is, but as long as you have this system, that's all I need. So, are we talking about that type of approach? Um, that is an approach you could take. Um, I'm thinking more about um, someone. So, what, what very often happens is that people don't think it's within their, for political or actual trust reasons, um, it's not within their field of expertise to make, to infringe on other people's territory. Mm. So, there's I'm not sure how much I really know about the monetization aspect, and so I'm designing kind of without it and the occasional input because I don't want to infringe into that, like PM's guy's territory, for example. Mm-hmm. PM's go like, well, designers, I know I want this system, but I don't know how it fits into the whole because that's not my job. Yeah. Um, and if you don't have someone brings that together and goes like, no, 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 like I, I know enough of this part and I know enough about the tech, I know exactly. enough about. Yeah. Okay, so, so um, and then the same, you can continue that with like, well, we need a certain amount of characters or cars or whatever you say, and yeah. then the art team says like, well, we're doing the cars this way, and the engineer says, well, if the cars are doing done this way, then you can only have X amount of them, and then the PM says, well, we'll need more, but we'll play with whatever we have, and then it becomes backward instead of starting from design, like we need X many in order to do this and do that, and that, that kind of like gets distributed to the art team, to the engineering, and to other disciplines. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the thing is, this doesn't have, this person doesn't have to be a designer. Um, 
I just prefer when it is, mm-hmm. but it could be a production, it can be PM, and then, like, I think that's the point where every studio culture is a bit different, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. you can often, it's a producer-led game, or if it's, say, even a coder-led game, um, which I've had in the past, uh, you can kind of see that in how the holistic version comes together. <laughs> um, but if it's a designer, it tends to be, it tends to make the better games, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so having uh, that kind of big picture guy, uh, he might not be great at your spreadsheets. Um, you might not be good at twiddling with UX. Sometimes it's perfect, but you really need it to um, to form a coherent whole of the game mm-hmm. where fun and monetization and uh, and all those things come together in a meaningful way. Got it. And then, yeah, the big picture we're talking about vision holder, and the vision holder can be even a GM or. EP or, or whatever, but as long as, as the team has a vision holder, it doesn't get adrift. It doesn't get, as you said, built from bottoms up. Yeah, and then the thing is, uh, if it is a designer, um, uh, you constant they, those people constantly have to fight for their lives, right? Uh, this is the, the designer's curse. We we'll probably get to that in, in, in a bit as well. But um, everyone always thinks a designer, um, and everyone thinks they're a great designer. Yes. Uh, so if you find yourself in that position, uh, you will constantly have to fight for why your vision, your reasoning behind the vision is better than someone else's. Yeah. <laughs> Same as with art directors. Yeah, although I'd argue that probably is not directed, it's slightly, it probably affects the game slightly less. Yeah, yeah, but there's, everybody has an opinion on art. I can't say that I never had an opinion on art, so. Uh, despite having no background in in um, in actually being able to say that, but yeah, still. Um, all right, and final one is the uh, the gluers. So how do they fit in, in free to play mobile games? So the the gluers, um, I think to sort of understand what's meant by that is um, back in the day, you needed a coder to make a game, and then the coders were not that good at art, so you added artists, and uh, at some point uh, in in this sort of history of games people passed on design responsibilities to a new group of people, which are then called designers. And um, the glue guy is uh, is sort of the evolution of the original designer, where designers used to be the guys who do everything that the coder and the artists can't or won't do, or don't have the time to do. Um, and the glue man is sort of, or the glue woman, is like the person who's best friends with everyone all the time. Um, they they know a bit about code, they know a bit about art, um, and, and every decision they make and every design they do, they take everyone into account, um, which is which is a great thing, which you should do anyway, but there's I find there's people who particularly thrive on that, and you want those people around. They almost go a bit into production almost, mm. where guys in the meetings, you know, when you discuss a feature, I always say like, oh yeah, but you know what, I had a chat with, you know, Andy, the coder about this, and he said that and that, and that's why we should maybe be this, doing this thing. And they become this constant tentacle uh, that the design team has into the other areas uh, of of of, um, of the dev team. And it's super, super useful um, because they become a constant informant of design, and they also do the work to constantly communicate the status of design to the rest of the team on a sort of non-formal basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and even um, so, I've worked with people who weren't that great in other design abilities, but they had that skill, and that actually proves to be invaluable. Mm. Um, it's it's subtle and it's soft, but I think there's certain people who literally thrive on that, and they can make the connections between designs 
and other disciplines, and they can make them all the time. And they're, they're very, very useful uh, if underestimated people. Mm. And here, naturally, when we're talking about different um, sort of stereotypes or categories of designers, it doesn't mean that designer is only a narrative designer, is only a spreadsheet, doesn't understand anything about feeling, or doesn't have a, a, a feel of a big picture, or is only a gluer. Of course, we're talking about like these are very stereotypical, and mostly you have different parts. And the second thing that I was just going, you know, listening to you and, and trying to, to also um, put a boundary on our discussion is that, that we're talking about uh, free to play games with teams of probably 25 and more. Uh, so, so since you have so many like specialists in, in, in a way, like you would have several designers on a team and so forth. So not as applicable for tiny teams of 10. Yeah, no, probably isn't. And um, the, I think where I think the sort of the stereotypes are, are useful in this conversation is um, you, very often when people hire designers, they're not designers themselves. Um, and very often designers are also not evaluated only by their design peers or superiors, but other people. And what I'm trying to say is that there is um, there's several types or areas of people where they can excel in design, and they're all very, very useful. Um, but this is often not recognized. So it's very easy for people, particularly mobile, to recognize the quality of a spreadsheet guy. And they're like, oh, this is clearly an important guy because I get what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of tangible output. But that, you know, people like, you know, the, the person is the kind of more the glue person, the people person, um, or the big picture guy, um, that, that those people are, those people, th- those skills are important designer skills. And that you shouldn't discount uh, um, a person or their qualities as a designer just purely based on the fact that it's hard to measure their output. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. I understand. So it's a much more fuzzy discipline. And um, if you're a production person or a PM or GM potentially listening to this, that you actually value those people for those particular skills because they are very useful to the design team. Mm. Okay. So so yeah, th- this makes a lot of sense. So when when you're you know, like, why are you guys going through the different types of designers? It's definitely understanding what is their role in different teams, and maybe you're lacking certain element in your team, and like, maybe you don't have the really holistic view of the big picture, or you know, typically you're you're not maybe tuning your game as well as it should be tuned, or or there's just some some intangible thing that is missing. It's kind of like all the different groups, the art, the engineering, the uh, the product management, the design, they're not gelling really well together. Maybe you need a Gluer, gluer type of designer to join, so so yeah, that's that, that's the uh, those are kind of important elements to to understand that, that there's different designers. <clears throat> All right, um, so let's talk about the uh, how to solve the typical pitfalls. And you know, we we chatted before, and then the typical three pitfalls is is that um, that designer uh, feels that the best ideas, best designs, come from their own head. The second pitfall is that that um, designer fears that that um, that best design is done in isolation, so away from others, away from feedback, and just present the ready-made design. Here it is, coming in like Moses from from the from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And the third one is is um, treating the project as a show showcase for your own or your your own skills, your own ideas, rather than than um, than a game that that. Um, Work, you know, that it, with the solutions that are best for the game and best for the team. 
So let's talk about these, how to, how to solve these, these different pitfalls and starting with the, um, um, the designers thinking that the design should come only from them, him or her. Um, yeah, so um, uh, for, I need to kind of sort of quickly backtrack to um, the original, like how do people become designers? And usually people become designers because I think the ideas are, are, are great, right? Um, usually what you get for applications for junior designers, the reasoning is like, you know, why are you applying? Because I have great ideas, which is almost a death sentence when you say that in an interview. Like, if you designer, never say that you want to be a designer because you have great ideas. That's like, kills almost every interview. Um, but uh, the first step for people is to learn that um, everyone's got great ideas. Uh, and, and you know, the longer the longer I'm in the games industry, the more I realize that very often the best ideas aren't even mine <laughs> at all. Um, and I'm, and I've had generally had instances where glorious game design ideas came from people who uh, cleaned the office. Um, it, it does happen. Uh, everyone's got amazing ideas, and uh, and it's just virtually impossible for a single human being to come up with all the greatness uh, that that uh, could be in your game. So, um, solving that, like I think you can you can tell starting designers that this is how it works, um, and they have to swallow it. And if they don't, then they have two choices. Either they, in the, in the, in the short term, they leave probably the industry because they're constantly frustrated. Um, or they become indie where they can actually go like, no, I'm in control of all this. Uh, and my ideas are my ideas and this is what we're going to do. Um, which can be successful, but in, in, a, in a studio environment, uh, the peop those people have very little... Um, uh, very little reason to exist because all they do is basically disrupt the team and they're unhappy so it's just like a like a lose-lose on both sides so I would expect anyone who's been in the, as a game designer in the industry for more than like two years in a studio that they that they know this and have deeply internalized the fact that they are gatekeepers of ideas um, or puzzlers of ideas but they're not the sole originator of good ideas I, th I think this this is solvable pretty fast in in any studio environment. Uh, you just put a junior designer. Again, we're talking about a little bit of larger teams. Let's say you have a spec review. Let's say let's say the designer comes up has a task of becoming of, of creating a spec for a certain specific thing. They create that spec and they present that spec and they get reviewed by you know by their peers, by other engineers, and by the pod or whatever the structure is. The, the quality of feedback that they would get either during that meeting or after the meeting where an engineer comes in or an artist comes in like, listen, I was thinking about what you said. Maybe you should, maybe we could do it this way. And they would explain a design. And, and at that point, you understand like, oh, my God, this engineer is a phenomenal designer. <laughs> like he just explained me how to do it better. But if you don't have an ego, and that, that, I think that that goes back to the ego question. Like if you if you don't have an ego, you listen to that person who, who gave you his or her feedback, you understand that that you're in a perfect position where you can soak in and get feedback from your from from your team and thus become a better designer. You don't have to carry it alone. It's it's the team will help you. So yeah, and usually um, usually I think why people uh, are worried about their best ideas not coming from them is because they feel um, they're left out of the process and they're not being credited. Right when you're like a coder, you write lines of code, and it's pretty clear to see what you've contributed to the game. 
Uh, when you're an artist, you make art, and it's pretty clear what you contributed to the game. Um, and I think as a designer, because your output can be relatively intangible, depending on what you do, um, I think there's always, as a designer, as a designer, you're always in the back of mind, is like, am I being recognized for doing good work? That's why ideas, ownership of ideas is so fundamental, because you're like, that's my idea. Mm. That, that, this, this is my idea. This is really important, because that's why I'm here, right? Uh, so, getting a bit, like, I've always been trying to get um, designers that I mentor to get out of this mindset of scarcity, where it's like, look, in a good studio environment, and with a good boss and all that happening, you are always being recognized for the good work you do, and um, even if sometimes there has no direct tangible expression in the game, uh, that you need to trust your teammates and, and, and your studio to recognize all the cool stuff you do. Um, and that it's not about who gets the most ideas in or whether someone stole your idea, that kind of stuff, um, but that it's a team effort. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, ne I never, never, actually never thought about that, that somebody would be so obsessive about ideas and then like, you know, getting their ideas in versus, versus somebody else's idea. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very good point. That's a, that's a very, very good view on, on things. So, so how about the, uh, the design is, is in, incepted and perfected in isolation? Uh, how do you, how do you solve that type of pitfall? Um, so, <laughs> um, you can preempt it. Uh, obviously, as you know, as you see it happening where people where you know, your reports or your design peers just basically hide away for a bit too long and you feel there's no updates, no feedback, you're like, hey, dude, are you like, you know, um, like, you know, what's happening? Uh, or it sort of happens automatically where people, they hammer away at it something and then they present it or it's supposed to go in the game and everyone goes like, that doesn't fit, man. And like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about this thing? And it's usually a very ex embarrassing, harrowing experience when that first happens to you. However, it's also a great learning experience. Um, so if, you, if you're if you the only designer on a project, which is always a bad thing, always hire two designers. Really? <laughs> uh, if you're the only designer on a project, this kind of happens, can happen often, and you have this, have this learning experience. If you're the larger studio, um, where people like look out for you a bit more, um, they should come around and go like, hey, you know, this this thing, what's the status? Do you want to like riff some ideas? Do you want to bounce off someone? And if you're a good designer, makes it a habit to constantly sounding board, um, to constantly be in contact with people go like, hey, what do you think of this? And don't have to be other designers. Um, they they can be coders, artists, whoever, whoever you think is, is a good person to bounce an idea off. Um, but it requires you, I think, as a, as, a, as a more senior designer, as a lead designer, to kind of make sure people don't have that extreme learning experience <laughs> uh, if they don't have to. And actually go like, hey, you know, You've been looking at this thing, you know. You've I've seen you've not been talking to anyone about it. Um, you know, why don't you go and uh, show me what you could be thinking about? Mm -hmm. Or I mean, constantly check in with people, particularly if they're more junior. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, or if they do have that experience, then help them to to kind of get back on their legs and and, and um, continue forward after after that fail. Uh, it's it's good to let people fail. I, I generally believe so a lot of people have helped me to fail <laughs> several times and, and it's a it's the uh, the best way to learn uh, as long as, as as you know they let you learn from it and and there's somebody to kind of review uh what went wrong what went well and then sort of a, do a little yeah, post mortem on the failure 
Yeah, I think you bring up a super good point there where um, I think it's generally, or at least my personal leadership philosophy is that you always want to give people ownership of what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, I think, even more important with designers because they tend to be quite ego-driven ideas people, um, as we probably has been shining through the entire conversation. is like most designers become designers because they think that they have great ideas and they want to uh, put them out in the world. So for designers, I think it's maybe even more important to have that ownership, which includes ownership of failure, and to actually um, allow them to kind of like, hey, here's your little patch that you can do whatever in, as long as it fulfills those requirements, um, because the feeling that you own your ideas, I think, is fundamental to a designer's happiness. Yeah, yeah. I think for, for every discipline, ownership is, is crucial. It, it, it really you know, helps you to do the best job you can. Um, Let's go to the final one. Is is where you um, a designer that that you know considers the game more of as their showcase instead of as a as a project as a as a as a creation of, of the whole team. How do you solve that? Um, so I think this is very interesting because um, you then get into the more philosophical aspect of like how creative projects and teams uh, are actually run and what makes them good and successful. Um, because I would argue that um, for a good designer on a on a on a on that high creative level, so we're talking like creative directors and lead designers here, uh, who who actually want to, you know, who who might want to see the game as you said a showcase of their ideas. Um, those people tend to have egos, and sometimes egos are important. I know that in English, the word ego has a bit of a bad ring. Um, it does less so in other languages, where it also conveys a sense of a strong, a strong personality. And sometimes, uh, to make a creative project successful and good, that kind of strong personality is actually useful because it creates unique and focused products. Um, so when you get to that level, it's kind of almost a constant balance between um, creating something that feels it's of one mind. And at the same time, not make it about yourself. <laughs> and it very much depends on the team structure, how you can solve that problem. But um, I try to at least in the, in the people that I mentor to try to uh, try to make them as egoless as possible in a sense that the team always goes first. Um, and it's not about your ideas and you need to disassociate yourself from ideas as a designer anyway because you constantly will have to make dreams and have them destroyed. That's the designer's life. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to to make sure that they always think team first and, and that it's not about them and their ideas, but at the same time <laughs> that they need to be able to defend what they believe are good ideas with their life um, because that's the only way you can actually create a product that will stand out. Um, and I, I actually generally think that good designs are not, or good high-level designs anyway, are not done by democracy. Um, I think you need, a, you need a, strong, a strong unifying mind to give it focus. Um, if you have like 20 people in a room and they all want to um, design the game together, it tends to be a bit of a hodgepodge mm-hmm. that never has anyone to pull. <clears throat> Got it. Yeah, this is this is a this is always a, a more you know you need a strong leader, but not but also a leader that is is thinking about the uh, 
you know, the results or the game or the team, not just his ideas and, and or her ideas and herself. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a that's a interesting one. Um Dude, we've talked about for an hour about designers. This is the most I've talked about designers probably ever in one <laughs> sitting. <laughs> um, yeah, you could probably keep on talking. The problem is that um, I always find when you talk about design, it's very it's a very fuzzy conversation, right? You talk a lot about soft things that are not easily put down in, in, in hard numbers or hard guidelines, um, which is why, and that's maybe something that I, I would like to point out, particularly if other disciplines are listening to this, um, that a designer's life is very frustrating and a lot of people don't take it into account. Because you have this problem that everyone thinks they're a designer, and particularly if they're more senior than you, they always tend to think, well, I've got a great idea. Why should that idea not be the one that uh, is executed in the game? Uh, and ignoring the fact that they actually don't know as much about design as they think they do. It's a bit like when you get a bunch of people talking politics over beer, Right? Everyone can be smart and amazing and know a lot about politics, but it does make none of us a politician. Exactly. Um, and uh, so when dealing with designers and design conversations, to keep in mind that despite all the fuzziness, there is a genuine expertise to being a designer uh, that you should listen to. Because um, I frequently encounter that over and over again, that um, you get what I call exec design, um, where you get you know, people come in who are smart people, great people, amazing at what they do. Um, but they think because of that, they're also good designers because, well, everyone can say things and have opinions and they don't really necessarily realize that being a good designer is more than just having opinions, but also an experience and a more holistic view of how all those pe of things fit together. Um, and this is, I think, the biggest design challenge of particular mobile because of the complexity as a, as a senior or as a lead designer. Mm. And then sometimes it's just the reason why execs might might come in and help out with the design is is also the fact that they don't maybe believe in the existing design or they haven't heard that they haven't been sold with the, with the design of of the team and they're kind of coming in and helping out because you know in the end their head is on the chopping block whether the game succeeds or not not the individual designers as much it could be but not as heavily as as some of the uh, the execs. So, but yeah, I mean, I, th I think we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, thank you so much for, for this discussion. I definitely learned a lot, and this was something that I, that I really wanted to, to, you know, to talk to you about, about designers. These are, these are interesting conversations for me. Yeah, I wish uh, I'm looking forward to your uh, own uh, explanation of uh, the, the, the same thing for PMs, actually. I'm working on it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we'll see we'll see it's a uh, it it takes it takes a, a, a little while but but yeah definitely working on 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 the same element and there are different PMs and and different roles and it it, it can be frustrating but I don't think the PM's job is as frustrating as designers' job so uh, but yeah uh, I wish you uh, the the best of the days and 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 hope you feel better soon. All right, cool. See you, Mishka. See you. Good talk. That was it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And as always, we really appreciate your feedback, your emails, your comments on the blog. And, and yeah, keep in touch. If 
you are interested in getting the weekly Deconstructor Fun newsletter. It's a short newsletter. We talk. We basically introduce the uh, latest, latest article, latest piece, as well as one of the pieces from the archives. If that's something that interests you, please go to Deconstructor Fun's website and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Thank you guys. Till next time.